in the songs that we have joyfully sung together and in the other aspects of our worship, our service this evening, how thankful we could be to be able to come together to feel the richness of God's blessings in our direction. Certainly, as we're well aware of some of those matters occurring in the world about us that we so freely can view on the news, we can ever be appreciative of the safety and the handiwork of God that allows us to understand truly His gifts and His blessings to usward. Not only physically, but certainly also in that realm of spirituality, forgiveness of sin, the loveliness of an association with Him, and the hope we can entertain of an eternal home in heaven. As was mentioned earlier, certainly we're very appreciative of the visitors that have come our way tonight, our regular membership too, and certainly we're happy to make note of Brother Ron being with us, and we hope that his work in Africa and the school there continues to be very profitable and productive and well. If I might turn your attention to our continuing study, as we have been in the book of Hebrews on Sunday evenings, we continue that particular study tonight as we look at yet another of the avenues of Christ's superiority, the greatness that we see in the very nature of the Son of God Himself. In fact, some review points from lessons that we have looked at previously may perhaps put our mind prepared for the next set of verses that we'll consider this evening. The book of Hebrews, as we have already learned so lovely, is a powerful book filled with marvelous truths that link the Old Testament to the New in a way that helps us appreciate, like perhaps none other, the handiwork of the greatness found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. As magnificent as that Old Testament may have been in its day, and as the purpose that God had in store for the law of Moses, so marvelous and wonderful indeed is that gospel etched in the very nature of what the Lord taught and the life and the promises that we find in Him. With that said, we have seen so far in our lessons an introduction to the book in which we look somewhat interestingly at some high points in each chapter. And following that, we began to look more interestingly at the superiority of Christ, especially in comparison to the prophets. In verses 1 to 3 of chapter 1, we saw so amazingly and also so directly that Christ is set forth to the, to in, the, in this manner and in this way, that we are to hear Him, not to hear those prophets of the Old Testament era at this point. Last week, we began to consider the angels, and we found the opening chapter set forth a number of considerations of Christ too, being superior to them, the office that they hold, and all that God has in store through the person of the Christ. When we looked at the Lord's divinity last week, we noticed a number of quotations from the Old Testament that reminded us of even what the Old Testament prophesied about His divinity and what that would mean for you and for me. Tonight, as we continue that series of lessons, you might notice the title was The Lord's or Christ's Superiority to the Angels, Part 2. For there are some other things in Chapter 2 that we should also consider that relate to this same subject. We closed Chapter 1 in our study last time. Might I invite you to notice with me in chapter 2 as we begin reading in verse 4. I'm sorry, verse 5. Begin reading with me in verse 5 as we look at the text to which we'll turn our attention this evening. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man, that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man, that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels, and crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. 
For in that he put not all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. For it became him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons into glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. A truly magnificent set of thoughts and principles and ideas have been set before us by the inspired writer. Over the time that we have this evening, might we look through that beginning at verse 5 and extract some of those deep nuggets of truth and use them in our daily walk of life henceforth that we might be able to not only better appreciate the truth contained in them, but to live in a spiritual fashion, drawing ever closer to what God would have us to understand and how he would have us to live. You see, notice with me again in verse number 5, we have mention again of the angels. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. Last week when we noticed Christ's superiority, the principal thing set forth in chapter 1 was his divinity, the fact of his deity, the character that he has being part of the Godhead. But there is yet another reason, and in fact many more, for Christ's superiority to the angels, and yea, his superiority to many other avenues of the creation. Chapter 2, the reading that you and I have just considered, lists his superiority because of his humanity. Because of the fact he sojourned amongst the human family, taking upon himself flesh and blood, and yet the manner in which he did that, the conduct that he exhibited, the character of what he brought to the human family by virtue of his death. All of that is yet another reason for his superiority. No angel ever did that, but Christ did. Let's put some meat upon that skeleton. By beginning in verse 5 and looking at the sequence of events that are mentioned and how that you and I are called upon to appreciate these very matters. Again, verse 5 reminds us, that it was not to the angels that God has put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. Some of the thoughts that you and I might begin to consider even asks us to give some thought about the world in which you and I now live. Isn't it interesting as we revisit the earliest stages in the book of Genesis that we are well aware that God on that occasion 
placed the human family with dominion over this physical creation. It was to Adam and to Eve, and he said that you are to have dominion over the fishes of the sea and the birds of the air and the other beasts that walk upon the planet. It was to Adam and to Eve that dominion was given, not to angels. And isn't it amazing to consider the especial place and the order that the human family was particularly blessed by the God of heaven. They were made in the image and in the likeness of God. Genesis 1.26, Genesis 5 verse 2. And in that likeness and in the bearing of that image, it was they that were given the opportunity and, yea, even the privilege of exerting dominion over the physical creation that had been put in place. But as one gives thought to that, you might notice in particular, again, this distinction to the angels. There are many things to be seen differently concerning the station that man occupies and the station that the angels occupy. That thought is shortly to be developed more carefully and shortly to be, de to be developed considerably more, considerably more thoroughly. As we move from verse 5 and give some thought to the way in which that is given consideration, you'll notice again that even that world to come, what lies beyond this one? The angels are not those who have dominion over it. The angels are not those who the scriptures affirm have a reigning or ruling prerogative, but yet to the Christians, we read in 1 Corinthians 6 beginning in verse 2, as well as in the marvelous 20th chapter of the Revelation, that you and I will occupy a role, a position described as one that reigns with the saints of all times. That has not been given to the angels. And yet this very thought will be used by the Hebrew writer to lift high the nature of Christ and his superiority. Because the continuation of verse 6 reads as follows, But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man, that thou art mindful of him? or the Son of Man that thou visitest him. The Hebrew writer quotes from the Old Testament on this occasion, one of the most familiar of the Psalms perhaps in Psalm 8 beginning in verse 3. When I consider the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast made, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the Son of Man that thou visitest him? Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels and crownest him with glory and honor. The psalmist on that occasion was overwhelmed as he gave thought about what he saw round about him. Who among us today cannot in many ways make the same statement? Do you feel somewhat remarkably amazed as you peer into a cloudless sky on perhaps a chilly evening and see the marvelous stretches of God's creation? Those stars that you know are rather distant from us, and yet the shining, twinkling character of them reminds us of the greatness of this universe, far beyond the capability of man to have made it, far beyond the character of man to even put forth mathematics and physics to fully understand all of it. Our God made all of that, and he put it in place, and it is maintained by the structure of the greatness of the Word of Christ, Hebrews 1, verses 2 and 3. Notice here, what is man that thou art mindful of him? As the psalmist gave reflective thought to that, when you and I note the vastness of this universe and seemingly the exquisiteness and greatness of it, and yet God still is mindful of man. And he has orchestrated the Old Testament, did he not, through 4,000 years of history to answer the greatest need of your life and mine, forgiveness of sin 
the opportunity to entertain heaven, the marvelous wonder that relates to an association with him. God was mindful of you and me. Though it's true, he fashioned and made all of this universe and again upholds it all. He still is very well aware of you, very well aware of me, and he has been mindful of us. There's never any need for a person thus to feel as if no one loves him. It truly is the case here upon earth. There may be those who rebel against us, have nothing to do with us, turn their back upon us, perhaps even do us wrong and in a bad way. But notice, it is the God of heaven who ever appreciates, has concern and care for us, and who would desire us to have the richness of life here through an association with Him so that we can enjoy the only life hereafter. God does care, and He does wish for us to have all of those things. What is man that thou art mindful of Him? Or the Son of Man that thou visitest Him? Has God visited you and me in a fashion that in fact exemplifies the depth of His concern for us? A simple reading of the New Testament quickly answers that question. It's all for your benefit and for mine. When we see what happened at Golgotha, when we see what the Lord went through to endure what He did, and yet He did all of that to pave the way for each of us that we might enjoy the forgiveness of those sins and an opportunity to understand the fullness of being called a son or a daughter of God. All of that challenges us even in this passage. The Hebrew writer was plumbing the depths in many ways of the fullness of what it means to live here and look forward to living there. As the author continues, Thou madest him a little lower than the angels, and crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. As you can see from some of the notes that I've asked us to give consideration, it truly is the case, isn't it, that by virtue of being made in the image and likeness of God, the human family was made in a way very different from any animal, very different from any of those other things fashioned on days one, two, all the way up to the early parts of day six. And yet in that light, that glory that is given to you and me, the character of the fact God made us to glorify Him, Isaiah 43, 7, only challenges us ever to note the way in which we walk upon this earth. Do you and do I so walk to bring glory and honor to the things God has set forth? Or do we selfishly attempt to take it to ourselves? We, of course, do a great mistake if we follow the latter path, do we not? As you can see in that very passage before us, Hebrews 2, verse number 7, this particular reflection of what is affirmed on that occasion, however, of course, points directly to the Christ. Thou madest him. Although the psalmist, it would seem in Psalm 8, first had in view and in the clearest of thought the greatness of the human family and God's especial favor to him, there really could be no doubt that behind this is all of you pointing an image to the Son of God. For a while he took upon himself a station lower even than the angels. He was flesh and blood like you and me. And as such, he in fact divested himself of all the things that he so often had at his fingertips in the annals of heaven so that he could in fact sojourn in flesh and blood with you and with me upon earth. 
That is another reason for his greatness. The marvelousness of his humanity and the superiority that came along with it. Isn't it interesting then to realize that when God at first fashioned Adam and Eve, that they were fashioned in a sinless nature, weren't they? It was not until later that they chose to disobey the God that had made them. It was they who disobeyed him and, of course, brought sin into the world. But in that way that they had been made, they, in fact, were sinless. You might notice then that as Christ entered this world, though made a little lower than the angels, all the while he was here, he ever lived in the exalted stature of sinlessness and was able to maintain always a full and complete relationship to his heavenly Father. That reminds us of what we could have had had you and I and the human family not chosen to sin, not chosen to disobey, not chosen to walk asunder by our own pathways. For isn't it still the case that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God? This reminds us again of just how great the Christ was. For over a third or roughly a third of a century, sojourning in the flesh and never once, not even once, be it by character of speech, by character of thought, by character of action, never once did he commit a sin. And in that way, of course, he stands so exalted in the character of his superiority. As the Hebrew writer has begun this book, it is in fact rather clear, isn't it? So marvelous is the greatness of Christ. We cannot mistake it. And we do a great wrong to, in fact, lessen the Christ in his, sta in his station. As you can see, perhaps on this next slide, the thoughts that are built upon it perhaps only lead us to see this. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. Verse number 8. For in that he hath put all things, or all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. That verse closes with this simple statement. But now we see not yet all things put under him. Jesus was the ideal specimen of what the human family could be. We read in Luke 2.52 that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man, even at the age of 12, when his parents had taken him to Jerusalem, the observance there of the Jewish feast. We notice he was even then about his father business. That only helps us appreciate the authority that God has vested in the Son. We notice in this passage we've just read, Jesus later himself, did he not state in Matthew 28 verse 18, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And it was on that basis that he gave the commission known as the Great Commission. All power vested in me, you go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. The appreciation, the thoughts about those points only lead us back to this text before us. Because isn't it interesting? It says now we see that not all things are yet put under him. Are there matters yet to be fully put beneath the auspices of the jurisdiction of the Son of God? We well understand that he is the head of the church. He is in fact the foundation on which it's built and based. He is the one who gave it the full nature of its doctrine to be taught and set forth. But there is that passage of 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 26 that tells us that that enemy known as death yet is in existence. But there's coming a day 
when even it, of course, will be done away with. And then Paul wrote, all things will be put underneath him and he shall hand it over to the Father. That's when the judgment shall take place. And that is, of course, when eternity shall fully be before us. The Hebrew writer had all of those things in mind, setting again the appreciation of the greatness of Christ. As verse 9 goes on to say, but what do we see? We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for a temporary time while he here dwelt in the flesh. Why was he made that way? Why did he take upon himself that form? We have the explicit answer. For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Your soul and mine has been led to the very depths of appreciation of what happened for us at Calvary. He tasted my death and yours, where I should have been, where you should have been. It was my sin that drove him there, and your sin that put him there. And yet he tasted of death for all of us. It was only through that avenue and through that way that we can understand the blessings of eternal life. He tasted of death for every man. To say that he tasted of that death for every man helps us again understand the suffering that he endured and the reason as to why he did so. For it became him in continuation, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things. May we pause at the very midst of verse 10. This very one who had in fact tasted of death for every man was the very same one who made everything. And it was he for whom it was made. Maybe you and I should reflect more often upon the discipline of our Savior, on the restraining opportunity within His being. On that occasion, as Calvary drew near, there were those about Him who mocked and ridiculed and scourged, who spat upon and beat and hit and insulted and blasphemed in a number of ways. It was He who had the power to wipe them off the map of the earth and to send them in an eternity to meet their destiny. But it was that same one who opened not his mouth. That same one who restrained himself. For he knew the scriptures must needs be fulfilled and the plan of his father needed to be brought to fruition. And had he not gone through that, then you and I would have been in a hopeless situation. Never an opportunity for sin to be forgiven. For sin to be remitted. For eternal life to be known. The Lord restrained himself though all the power he had. We read in verse 10, it became him. That is, it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons into glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. We might understand then a few of the words that you and I have just read together. In verse 10, bringing many sons into glory. May we not recall the words of John twelve thirty two. when Jesus said, If I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. He was, of course, lifted up not many days thereafter. And in that lifting up, he now has extended a golden invitation to all of us, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Those famous words closing the 11th chapter of Matthew. 
Here we notice the captain of our salvation. As you perhaps might notice, that word captain literally means founder. It means leader. Some have interpreted it to mean author. Christ, our captain. We are well aware of a military concept in which it is anticipated that any rightful soldier must follow the dutiful orders of that general, that captain, that leader, and any who does not do so is rather quickly punished so that he will come to understand that there must be total allegiance and devotion to the leader. If there is anarchy in the ranks, there will be no victory in the war. And may we not understand we have a captain who has already blazoned the trail for us to everlasting glory and we should be the dutiful ones to follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. In the words of Revelation 14.4, those thoughts from verse number 10 help us note again to make the captain, that founder, that leader of their salvation perfect through suffering. May we not think that that means Christ was imperfect before the sufferings of the cross. He was perfect all throughout by the manner in which he conducted himself in the life that he lived. That word perfect identifies a completeness to the aspect of ultimate opportunity for our association with God. It was that that was perfected and completed in the nature of that gospel founded, of course, on his death, burial, and resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 4. But those matters lead us to verse 11. In continuation... For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. The he refers to Christ. The brethren are those who would be the faithful members, of course, that he is able to associate with. He that sanctifieth and they that are sanctified are all of one. The meaning of that is truly magnificent, isn't it? You and I being leveled on a statement of being one in the same breath and in the same sentence as the Christ? In what way are you and I able to appreciate oneness with Him? You'll notice he's about to continue that description and that discussion. But perhaps at this point might we not say, He sanctifies. He is the one through whom the agency of your and my sanctification occurs. We're sanctified through His blood, sanctified through His gospel, sanctified on the basis of that which He made available to us. You and I as the sanctified ones are thus said to be all of one. We share a likeness to the fleshly existence that He had while here upon earth. And in that likeness and the oneness we see, in fact, a greatness that extends even beyond that. For the Roman letter still says, you and I are joint heirs with Christ, and we're heirs of God. Romans 8, verses 14 to 16. Doesn't that help us see what Christ bought for us? He bought a way for you and me to be a child of God. To be able to share a greatness of understanding the power of godliness and what life here will allow for life hereafter. That oneness is such that Christ isn't ashamed to call us his, bro- his brethren. Do you and I think of ourselves as being His brethren? We think about being the brothers and sisters of one another, but friend, here we read in verse 11, He, Christ, is not ashamed to call us brethren. May I submit to you each day, 
may we keep a thought like that in our mind. It will challenge us to live more nobly, righteously. For if we ever remember he's watching and we're his brethren, we have a responsibility to live for him and in light of his gospel, to share forth to others the beauty of his nature and the power of his death. Verse number 12, the author dips into the Old Testament for another quotation, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. This quotation takes us back to the 22nd Psalm, a rather powerful messianic psalm pointing throughout to the crucifixion. We have a thousand years before it happened. God's revelation through the Holy Spirit to David. And as he penned it, he wrote about things that would happen at Calvary when Christ would be pierced and when the Christ would give his life for those about him. We see even in this case a quotation by the Hebrew writer of that very passage. I will declare thy name in the midst of the, congreg- in the, midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. In Isaiah 8, verses 17 and 18, we find the other part that's here in mentioned. It would seem that this would be certainly a fair time to draw a rather amazing conclusion. And a conclusion from these verses that is absent in the mind of some in the world in which you and I live. I've tried to write it near the top of that slide. Might we give some thought to the following idea? Verse 12, I will declare thy name unto my brethren, in the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And here then is the question. We have explicitly reference to my brethren, but then it says where those brethren are found. If you are of a habit of making notes in your Bible, you might want to put a little note beside this one. You'll notice he explicitly says that his brethren are found in the midst of the church. And that Greek word that appears there is ekklesia. It is the word so often used otherwise to refer to the church of Christ, the church of our Lord, the church purchased by His blood. And thus, again this point, where are the brethren of Christ found? They're not found simply by a person who says, by my life I think I'm okay. Or I'll worship in whatever denomination I want. It's found in that church purchased by the blood of Jesus, Acts 20, 28. He says, my brethren are in the church. His brethren aren't found just anywhere. And the myriad of those who may think that they are occupying that role are vastly mistaken. If they're not in the church, and we know elsewhere from the sacred writings that one is baptized into the church, 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, Galatians three twenty six and 27, We find in passages like that that we are baptized into Christ and he adds us to the church. Acts 2.47 Therefore, if one is to be his brother, he must have been, he is a member of that church and has been baptized into it. No others can rightly say that they are the brethren of the Savior. In continuation in verse number 13, And again I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. That passage also from the Old Testament, again in Isaiah the 8th chapter, we find the Hebrew writer pointing squarely and directly to some well-known passages for a Hebrew and yet using them to teach 
the thoroughness of the church today and the superiority of the Christ who reigns supreme over it. In verse 14, we find before us perhaps one of the key verses that you and I might remember from our earlier study of the book of Hebrews. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. Our blessed Savior chose to enter this world, fulfilling the will and submission to his Father, and as a part of that wonderful labor in which he endured. We notice here he, of course, took upon himself flesh and blood, that helps us appreciate the pre-fleshly existence of Christ. You see, he chose to take on him the form of that flesh and blood. He had had an existence, of course, since eternity with the Father in heaven. But in the accomplishment of the Father's will, he chose to take on himself the form of flesh and blood. And in that way, notice where it led. He destroyed the power of the devil, but in what way did he do it? Isn't it ironic that it was in his death? You and I today are so often mindful of the fact that it seems great things are done by a man when he's alive. That person may be a president of the country, but he has to be alive to be so. A person may be a great military leader, but he must be alive to be so. A man might be perhaps a great elder, a notable preacher, a noteworthy song leader, but those things happen when he's alive. Christ's victory over the devil occurred when he died, when he left this world sinlessly, when he in sinless character gave his life for the remission of the sins of all the world and gave all mankind the opportunity to defeat and to enjoy victory over the devil. That, of course, was the greatest triumph for you and for me. And as we see in verse 14, that he might destroy him that had the power of the devil. Jesus took the chief club out of his hand. He had held the club of death since the Garden of Eden. Christ reached in and took the club out of his hand. Sure enough, now death is still at times a troubling thing when we step over a casket. We perhaps visit a cemetery and are aware of the loss that you and I now feel. But Christ, again, has given the great hope of appreciation that that's just a transition. And for those who leave this life having died in the Lord, Revelation 14, 13, they can rest from their labors and their works do follow them. And in so doing, they can leave this life ready for all eternity, knowing that Christ will be prepared to say to them, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Death need not be that thing that is so haunting that is so tragic and terrible anymore. Christ Jesus has taken the power out of death for the devil, and he has reserved it, of course, for himself. Might we notice in verse 15, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. There, of course, Christ's victory seen yet again. Those who were held, of course, in bondage now can understand the freedom from that club of death that the devil had held. And look forward to that greatness of the life espoused in heaven by Jesus himself. The closing three verses of this chapter that will, of course, conclude our study this evening. Help us to notice near the bottom of that slide that Jesus did not take on or did not take hold of angels. 
which is the more literal Greek rendering of verse number 16. Our King James reads it again like this. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels. But if you're reading in the American Standard, or again if you're following along with perhaps a Greek lexicon of sorts, you'll notice that the more proper rendering of the language that is present would be this one, that Jesus did not take the hold of angels. Rather, he did take hold of the seed of Abraham. When you and I give thought to the wonder of God's providence in history, that is, he made that call of Abraham and promised him that all nations of the earth would be blessed through him. Genesis 12, verses 1 to 4. We find that fruition in the very character of those submissive to the Christ. For isn't it still true in Galatians 3.29 that you and I can rightly be called the children of Abraham by faith in the understanding of the very nature of the fulfillment of those promises. He took on him the seed of Abraham, wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be mean like unto his brethren, that he might be a faithful and merciful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. One final set of thoughts perhaps may be ours. For in verse 16, the Greek text reminds us that that forgiveness that's offered to you and to me as we faithfully obey the commandments He has delivered is a forgiveness that He never offered to angels. Those angels that sinned, we learn in passages such as 2 Peter 2.4, are reserved in everlasting change until the darkness of the judgment. But yet to you and me, He offered the opportunity, the power, the blessing of forgiveness, the blessing of being, of course, having those sins remitted. Thus, how special are we when we consider that angels weren't given a plan of salvation, but men are. No wonder we should give such heed to that plan of salvation. Notice near the bottom that faithful high priest that, of course, is the Christ, is standing ever ready, having known what temptation is like but never succumbing to it. He can be there to help you and me when that temptation stands before us. And it'll be no wonder that chapter 4, verse 16 will read, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and grace for every help in time of need. And so tonight, as we've closed this second chapter and seen yet another aspect of his superiority, it might be well for us to close our thoughts with this summary page. As the book of Hebrews continues to stir our thinking, and to call us to understand more thoroughly the greatness of what God has done for us through the Christ. Some of the highlights of this chapter may well be in those forms. For true enough, as great as the angels may be, Christ still is so much greater, not only because of the divinity, but because of His humanity. He took upon Himself the form of flesh and blood, but never sinned. And yet, in the thoroughfare of being that sinless sacrifice for your sins and mine, He accomplished what no angel ever could. He provided a way for you and me to be saved. Tonight, where do you stand then? Have you accepted the offer of salvation? Notice that the thing that the New Testament teaches us about it is, though it's offered by the grace of God, we must receive it. We don't just automatically receive it because we're born into this world by our mother and our father. We have to make a conscious decision and respond in obedient faith. Tonight, what about the plan of salvation? Have you rendered obedience to it? 
Jesus said, Except ye believe that I am He, ye shall die in your sins. John 8, 24. You must thus believe Jesus to be the Christ, the promised Messiah, the one whom He said He was. You, of course, must also realize belief is not the end of that plan of salvation. You're required to repent, just as they on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2.38. That repentance means a change of mind that results in a change of action relative to the sinful ways of your former life. Upon that repentance, confess in a simple way the fact that Jesus is the Son of God and that you believe that with all your heart. The eunuch did that. The Lord affirmed the need for that in Matthew 10, 32 and 33. Upon that confession, you simply need to then be immersed, baptized in water for the forgiveness of sins. That burial is a reenactment of the death, burial, and the coming forth or resurrection of the Son of God Himself. And in that likeness, you come to know then the association with Him, Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. If you haven't attended to that in your life, why do you delay? Why do you procrastinate? There may be no tomorrow. If you have become a Christian, but at this point you honestly know that you aren't faithful, don't let Satan cloud your thinking. Don't let him pull the wool over your eyes for the next few moments when we stand and sing this hymn of encouragement. If you need to ask for prayers of forgiveness, as we've witnessed in the last week or two from others, if we could pray also for you, let us do that. We'd be honored to do so. If either of these would be the need of your life, won't you let it be known while together we stand tonight and while we sing.